Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is May 19, 2017, and this is episode 2007 of the Survival Podcast. And you know what day it is. It is Friday, 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 the monster show of the week where we have questions for the expert council members. Here's what we got on deck for you this week. Making sure your homeschoolers are ready for college or private school with Mike and Sue LaPreeze. The truth about TENS devices from Doc Bones. What's a TENS device? Don't worry. If you don't know, you'll find out when Doc Bones talks about it. Safe installation of a wood stove in a tent from Tim Glance. Why you shouldn't can your own herbal teas from Erica the Awesome Strauss. Making the most awesome of barbecue pork from Chef Keith Snow. Making pollen patties for your bees with Michael Jordan. And a question for me on why we shouldn't fear that the government will just shut down cryptocurrency. All of that and more in just a bit. Before we dig into all that great stuff, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Hey, have you ever thought about making a knife from scratch but just felt it was too complicated? Well, at KnifeKits.com, anyone can learn to make great knives, even me. From the total newbie to the master bladesmith, they have everything you need to make great knives, kydex sheets, and more. Find it all at KnifeKits.com. You know, I use a Berkey water filter in my home, and I have for over six years now. It's important to me to have the best quality water, but it's also important for me to get great service, pricing, and support, which is why I only deal with one source. That's Jeff the Berkey Guy Gleason, one of the top dealers of Berkey in the world with customer service that will blow you away. Learn more at Directive21.com. Again, Directive, and then the number is 21.com. Next up, let's take a look at the year that was the episode. The year is 2007 because, well, we've just been around that long and done 2007 episodes of the Survival Podcast. And uh, the year that was the episode, I have two from Alex Shrug today. Southpaw Ben, I think, is uh, dealing with his studies again. So we have nothing from him. But here's what I have from, uh, from Alex Shrug. Little Brother and the Escape from Homeland Security... And a guerrilla ad campaign panics the public. Notable deaths this year, Yvonne DiCarlo, age 84, of heart failure. She was Lily Munster on the Munsters. Dan Fogelberg, age 56, prostate cancer, singer-songwriter, best known for the song Leader of the Band, a tribute to his father. I've played that song. I love Dan Fogelberg. His story is an amazing one. This is a guy that... You know, went out to L.A. to get a recording contract. So I'm going to go to L.A. and get a recording contract. And a year later was cutting a record. Uh, you just don't do that unless you're just that good. He had no connections, no inside people. He was just that good. Anna Nicole Smith dies this year, age 39, of a prescription drug overdose. Uh, Ike Turner died at age 76 of cocaine toxicity. Uh, muser, songwriter, his ex-wife and singer Tina Turner accused him of domestic violence. His crack, cane, crack cocaine addiction in prison time killed his career, and apparently him. This year in film, Pirates of the Caribbean at World's End, Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix, and Transformers National Trevor, Treasure, Book of Secrets, and The Bourne Ultimatum. You, you notice like the Pirates of the Caribbean and Harry Potter movies just come out like one after the other after the other, and how long you have to wait for Star Wars movies? I'm just saying. 
I think a lot of us have noticed that over the years. This year in TV, Are You Smarter Than a Fifth Grader comes out. The Big Bang Theory started all the way back in 2007, and here we are, 2017. It's 10 years. i got to believe that show is going to be wrapping up soon. And I uh, just saw an advertisement yesterday for a show called Young Sheldon. So it seems like they're going to spin off out of there before it starts. It looks like it's going to be stupid. It really does. It looks like they're going to ruin the legacy of the great show. Just, just to me, just off one commercial, I'm just saying. Private Practice starts this year, which was a spinoff from Grey's Anatomy. Uh, Alex Struggs says he watched it for a while. It was good. Never watched Grey's Anatomy. Never watched Private Practice. Don't know anything about them. And John and Kate Plus 8 reality show starring the Goslin family. And their eight children made up of sextuplets and twins. It will be renamed Kate Plus 8 after their divorce. Alex Struggs said, I stopped watching at that point. I didn't have to stop because... I just don't really watch reality TV, or as I call it, non-reality TV. This year in music, Irreplaceable by Beyonce, Not Ready to Make Nice by the Dixie Chicks, which is just totally screwing your career that's already in a downward spiral. Yeah, um, Give Me More by Britney Spears. And this year in video games, the Xbox 360 sucks. Halo 3 on Xbox 360 rakes in $170 million in 24 hours. Uh, World of Warcraft, The Burning Crusade, an expansion of a set for World of Warcraft on PC. And Madden NFL 08, yet again, number one video game of the year. In other news, Nancy Pelosi becomes the first female speaker of the house. Apple iPhone launches. Do you get that? The first Apple iPhone launched 10 years ago. You feeling old yet, guys? Microsoft releases Windows Vista. It has problems, but security upgrades are vital for the future. Windows 7 is better. I'm avoiding Windows 8 and 10, says Alex Rook. Me too. I'm still running Windows 7 on my Windows machines, and I'm thinking whatever comes next, based on the track record Microsoft has, will actually be an improvement. But 8 and 10, they can shove it up their Microsoft asses. I will not use it. Uh, a mentally ill uh, Virginia Tech student goes on a shooting spree, killing 32. A debate on selling guns to the mentally ill ensues. Cyclone Cider hits Bangladesh, killing three to 10,000. The death toll depends on how you attribute the cause of death. 3,000 direct, 7,000 indirect from disease in the aftermath. The I-35 West, Mississippi River Bridge in Minnesota collapses during rush hour, killing 13. Southern California wildfires force the evacuation of over 1 million people. And the Writers Guild of America goes on strike. Reality TV gets a boost since it's largely improvisational. I don't think anybody really cared other than the writers themselves, by the way. Um, let's take a look at a guerrilla ad campaign, Panics the Public, because it shows the stupidity of government in Boston. So that's just double, double good, right? Um, Aqua Teen Hunter Force is a late-night cartoon series on Cartoon Network. It is a spinoff of the campy cartoon talk show Space Goes Coast to Coast. It is in order to sell it to the corporate suits, Aqua Teen Hunger Force begins as a detective agency located in a South Jersey neighborhood. The main characters are talking fast food products, a meatball, a shake, and a bag of fries. But soon the creators drop the idea of solving crimes and do strange random stuff with the characters. Now the show has produced an animated film, so in order to promote it, they hire a small ad agency to create magnetic signs that light up similar to light bright toys of the 1960s. Hey, 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 I had a light bright in the 1970s. It wasn't just, in early 80s. It's not, I'm not that old, okay? Anyway, okay, back to the thing. But what they do, uh, what, what, what do they put on the sign? 
The show has two recurring characters called the Moonanites. These are boxy, pixelated characters who freely flip off the audience. Perfect. Signs with the Moon and I extending the middle finger are distributed around Boston. They hope the signs will generate a lot of talk. They certainly do that. Most of the public has never seen the cartoon series, so they have no context. Many fear that the pixelated characters might be bombs. Yes, every mad bomber places lights on his bombs so the police are sure to find it. Panic ensues. The show's creators are brought to justice. They are seemingly strangely un unrepentant. Eventually, they are forced to apologize for endangering the public with signs. Boston has become a laughing stock. My take by Alex Strug. Well, this gives you an idea of the mindset of the time. People were still worried over suicide bombers and retaliations over the war in Iraq. Although it was a reasonable worry, if they had just stopped to think for a moment, the whole thing would have blown over in a day. Instead, officials dragged it out for a week, making everyone in Boston look like fools except the people who created the guerrilla ad campaign in the first place. They were delighted. Their audience was made up of young adults who needed a good laugh, and they got one. It was at the expense of their elders even better. Um, yeah, I remember this, and I remember how freaking stupid I thought the entire city of Boston must be. You've got a, a freaking light, bright-looking sign with a little animated guy giving you the bird, and you think there's bombs all over your city. This is a, a couple things. One, how stupid government is, because it probably took the authorities like 15 seconds to actually figure out, what, was, what the hell is this thing? Oh, 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 that's what this is. And by the time they figured out what it was, they contacted the people behind it. Yeah, yeah this is what it is. Okay, so all they did was have a public service man. This is a guerrilla marketing campaign. We're having the people clean. No, but no, they got to make a big deal out of it, okay? But it also shows the stupidity of the average American person. And this is why I have so little faith in democracy anymore, this type of stupidity. This is a direct product of Hollywood, okay, Hollywood has created this level of stupidity in our people. Because every time there's a bomb in a movie, there's like a lot of blinking lights and stuff. When you make a bomb, you probably don't have a lot of blinking lights and stuff. You, you need an explosive and a detonator, something to set it off. That's all you really need. And you know these things like, there's 37,000 wires and you have to cut just the right one or it's going to... This is generally not how bombs are made either. It's all crap. Now, there are some bombs that are built by sophisticated bombers that have tamper-resistant components to them uh, that make it difficult to disarm them. But in general, you can usually disarm a bomb if you understand how it's built. Uh, and generally, they're not sitting there with a bunch of blinking lights on them. But why does... Hollywood do this? Is it just for the purpose of dumbing down America? No, it's a byproduct that they dumb down America. It's because they, they want something to be there. So I'll tell you a story. Back in the early 2000s, I went to work for a company called Microtest. We were quickly bought up by Fluke Networks, and I ended up taking the Northeast region uh, as a Northeast regional sales VP for Fluke. But at Microtest, we had these cable testers. You put an end on both ends of the tester. And the one end is a smart end, if you want to think of it that way, that has a little readout. And it says, you know, whether you pass or fail and all this other stuff. The other end just sits there. It's the remote. Now, it actually has the same intelligence built into it, and they talk back and forth. But to keep the cost down, you build one display. Think of it like a GUI on computers, right? One place you actually see something. So when we're selling these things, you know, I had always wondered why the remote made this tick, 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 
tick, tick, tick song. And when I went to work, sound, it's not song. It made this tick, 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 tick. Like, that doesn't make any sense. for what the, I know what this thing does. So when I finally got to go in there and talk to the engineers at Bill, they said, oh, we put that in there so that people would stop bothering us. I said, what do you mean? They said, well, what kept happening was when two guys were testing, they'd have radios or Nextels or cell phones. And the one guy that would be on the rowboat and wasn't sure anything was happening, and he kept walking back to like the closet and saying, hey, uh, is it working? Is it working? So they kept getting complaints from the field. So they gave this device something to do just so the person understood something was happening. Just like on your computer when you do something, it's taking a computer a while to do it. It doesn't just happen in the background, what it really does. But they'll put something up like an hourglass or something spinning or something so that you know that something's happening. This is how Hollywood works. They need something to convey that something's happening. This is why you watch shows about outer space and a spaceship takes off and you hear, you know what you hear in space? Absolutely effing nothing. But this is why Hollywood does this, because it, it, it plays into the mindset where the person gets engaged. And what happens is the person is now unable to separate fact from fiction and logic from illogic, and now a sign of a little cartoon character giving you the bird is a bomb from Iraq. And the authorities just fall right into it and look even dumber than they already are. This is why when you say, why have you lost faith in democracy in the state? Here you go. Here you go. The perfect example of why. Because this was something that should have lasted five minutes, it lasted a week, people freaked out about it. And panic was made greater by the state, not reduced, which is supposed to be their freaking job. This was stupidity at its highest. On that note, um, if you don't usually get by and read the history segment, Little Brother and the Escape from Homeland Security, get by and read it today. There's some resources in there for your privacy that you're going to want access to. I just decided that this other one was more interesting for me to talk about. That's why the one I picked it. All right, folks, let me remind you that the main way that you can support the work that we do here at the Survival Podcast is by joining the Member Support Brigade, or MSB for short. And you hear me talk all the time about the over 60 discounts that you get, but let me tell you some of the other things you get. How about nine free eBooks, including Planting Trees the Low-Cost Easy Way, How to Build Top Bar Beehives, Basics of Sprouting, Building an EPAC Kit, Getting Your Household in Order, Building a Traditional Clay Oven, Building Aquaponics Systems, Secrets of Ballistic Strikings, and Squanto's Garden. All of those are free eBooks that you get only as an MSB member. You can also download MP4 versions of many of our YouTube videos. You get zip files of every episode of TSP ever produced. And how about videos of the workshops here at Nine Mile Farm that we do in the spring and the fall? All of that and more available as an MSB member. You can sign up for as little as 5 bucks a month to give it a shot or $50 a year. That comes out to 18.3 cents an episode. All right, with the uh, housekeeping knocked out, let's go ahead and take our first call of the day. This call is for Mike and Sue Laprise on making sure that your homeschoolers are ready in the future if you want to move them into a private school or when they get older into college. Mike and Sue, take it away. This is Michael and Sue Laprise with HaloBySue.com, designing the life you'd love to live. For the expert counsel, hey Jack and TSP community, today's question comes from Nick. The next question is this, what is the best way for homeschooling parents to ensure their kids are able to be admitted into private school or later college should their child want or need to explore those options in the future? Here are the details. We are a new homeschooling family from the U.S. currently living in Mongolia. Yes, Mongolia. That's and we started homeschooling our eight-year-old son last fall after our relocation. 
We're already getting a handle on our local requirements for homeschooling, so that's not an issue. However, we do have some concerns about U.S. college admissions, should he choose that path, or even admissions into private school in the U.S. or elsewhere in the event homeschooling is no longer an option for us. Are admissions to private schools and colleges for homeschoolers fairly reasonable and accommodating, or will we run into problems of lack of credentials? So the first thing they've done is um, set a really good foundation. They've chosen Spectrum Math, which sequences you through the grade levels in math, so you're not missing any parts, and your kid can move through at their own pace. And then they've chosen a comprehensive curriculum, and that's the name of it, Comprehensive Curriculum. And you can get that at Costco and other places. And it has history and some science and writing and just fun things in there at different age levels. And it's super easy to travel with. It's two books. And the answer key's in it. It's They're really great. So that by keeping that simple, they can have this great adventure in that culture of Mongolia. I mean, can you imagine? Doesn't that sound really fun for an eight-year-old to be out there with their parents and just immersing themselves in the culture, and they're going to try to get some language stuff in for their kid while they're there? So what we would recommend that you really focus on, like up to eighth grade, now this is for anybody, not just the people in Mongolia, is that math and writing are the focus of your homeschool learning because that is where the testing happens. But it's not just the testing. It's also where the learning leap boards from that. When your kid has a reading and writing foundation and some math foundation, then they can learn about the world around them so much better. So one of the fun things we thought of while we were pondering this question was having a really cool little online journal blog. Maybe they can get in touch with Jack and we can kind of share their experience and their son can post some pictures and some journaling and work on his writing with that. So the other thing they were looking for was what is the best way to ensure admittance either into private schools or to colleges if their son were to choose that. And Nick, I would say there is no best way. I'll give you an extreme example. There was a young man living in a car with his mom. So they were homeless. They were living out of a car. <clears throat> Excuse me. And she would take him to the library daily. And that's where he would do his learning at the library. Well, when it came time, he aced the SAT exam. And a local college got picked up on the story of what he was living through and his perseverance to, to study in the face of the life that they were living, and they gave him a scholarship. But it just goes to show you, he worked really hard, and he aced the SATs. Now, there's, that's one extreme. The other thing is, community college is a way for a lot of people to enter into the college situation if they want to. And so, Nick, there's three things you need. It's kind of like uh, Cajun food. There's the Mirapur, right, the trinity of celery, green peppers, and onions. And maybe you throw in a little bacon on that. <clears throat> well, for college admissions, the trinity is a transcript, a diploma, and an SAT score. And you wrap that all up in bacon, money, and that'll get you into your admissions. Uh, and it is generally uh, accommodating, but basically those are the things you'll need. So as you're going along, you're going to want to maintain a transcript for your child. Um, here in the state of Texas, homeschooling is considered like a private school. 
So we issue our own diplomas and we print out our own diplomas. And uh, transcripts. And transcripts. And then, of course, we take the kids to take the SATs. And then they go take the, score, the scores. And depending on how well they do on the SAT, we'll determine what universities or colleges they can get into. And so one of the things we do is once our kids have taken the entrance test, that's when we put the grades in their transcript for math and writing. Because if your grade um, varies greatly from that test score, they're going to kind of wonder about all the other grades. So the other grades don't matter so much to a college, but the math and writing grades need to line up with those SAT scores. Um, one of the things that's really important to think about when your kids are young and you're projecting out into the future and you're thinking, you know, you want to provide every opportunity for them is to think about what learning is. Is learning an education you acquire in a classroom where somebody gives you information and you repeat the information or is learning about how to solve a problem? So there's this really funny comedian. His name is J.P. Sears, and he has a bunch of YouTube spoofy videos. And the, one of his is um, on higher learning. And one of his lines in there is because, I mean, we need to go to college because there isn't a way to get free information about anything anytime you want it. And while he's saying that, there's an, um, a Google search bar, you know, going over the front of the screen. Like there obviously is a way to get all of the information you want anytime you want it. Yes, I'll give you an example. Our eldest son is in construction and he models old homes in the Austin, Texas area. And so there are deed restrictions and regulations. And some of these homes are very old. And so they've got um, non-standard sized windows. They've got gingerbread. There are historical paint colors. Um, and he does a lot of his research online, so uh, even looking for new ones. So if he's got a window that he has to replace, but he's got to maintain uh, the architectural integrity, then he goes online to look for that size window uh, and does a search for it and sees if there's one of something currently available or to somebody who will build it for him uh, to meet the, the specifications. So one of the things that... Um, that I really appreciate about what Nick was saying is he's thinking into the future, him and his wife, they're thinking 10 years out for their son. He may be eight now, but in 10 years he'll be 18. And as Jack says, tick tock, tick tock. Yeah. The time goes by really quick. So we talk about, and Jack's key line, preparing if times get tough or even if they don't, it's all about preparation. So one of the things that I would recommend Nick also is to go back to episode 1972 and it's Jack's 20 things every 14-year-old should know. And I would say you can customize that list, as Jack had mentioned. But look through that list. It'll give you some ideas of key things to teach your kids. And as you're doing that, ask yourself this. What are your child's interests and skills? What are the things that they're drawn to? And while you're out living this wonderful, adventuresome life, be focused on that to find out what is it that your child interested in and help them to develop those interests and skills. I think it's amazing, and talk about technology, that as in the TSP community, we have listeners. Jack's got listeners in Mongolia, halfway around the world. It's all about technology, and technology is changing the way we learn. So the expert council, it's Q&A for adults. It's the future of learning. We're doing it here within our community. It's fantastic. 
So uh, our hope really is that your child won't need college in the future, that there will be an ever-growing number of resources, just like the permaculture design course, that there will be PDCs and these different micro-degrees or focus studies in a field that um, we'll be able to learn what we need to know to get the skills we want to accomplish a specific task. So the real thing you want for your children and really for ourselves is we want to know how to learn. We want to know that it's okay to check our assumptions at the door and think about things differently and look at them from a different perspective. We want to be wise enough to know that there isn't a settled science because really science is an ever-expanding learning field and that history, when you read it, is written from the biased perspective of the writer. And so you've got to get a lot of history in to figure out what the truth is or find your own perspective. And that's really what learning is all about. It's not about getting to college and getting a degree or even planning for the future. It's about knowing how to learn. So, Nick, we'd like to wish you and your family just a wonderful adventure. Yeah. Uh, we're really excited that you're doing that. Boy, that was something that we would eat up, and we uh, wishing you the best. And again, for TSB, this has been Michael and Sue Laprise with HaloBySue.com, designing the life you'd love to live. Back to you, Jack. Okay, well, first, I mean, Nick, if you want to take them up on their offer to do some collaboration with some online stuff, uh, you can get to them through me or just go to Halo by Sue, Halo like the halo over an angel, halobysue.com, and I'm sure you can contact them directly that way. I think it would be a really great collaboration, and if you all do that, make sure to let me know more about it. Um, I, I do want to reiterate that I think that Anyone who says that they don't want to homeschool because they're worried about kids going to college or you know anything like that or future opportunities, I, I, I find it to be not worth worrying about anymore. That there are so many opportunities, and we have kids that are in homeschool before they have a diploma in high school are knocking out two years of community college. It, it's just it, it's just not an issue if you take the right approaches to things. If college is even what that youngster wants to do, because I think that. A lot. If you're a self-motivated young person today, unless you want to go into a STEM field uh, or unless you want to be a lawyer or a doctor or something that legitimately requires a degree, you know, if you want to be in film or, or, or music or something like that, I think you are so much better off deep diving straight in and using what's available. And then if you find that there's some impediment to moving forward that could be solved if you had a degree, then start pursuing that degree and use your relevant experience to get the degree faster. But at least get to the point where you're like, man, if I had a degree, I'd be able to move forward in this. Because there's so many people that say, well, I need a degree to be able to do X, Y, and Z. Well, have you tried to do X, Y, and Z? And if you found that your impediment is either a lack of experience or a lack of degree, because if it's a lack of experience, go get some damn experience instead of a degree. If it's a lack of degree, go get the degree. I think that's how the only way you can really make a determination anymore as to whether or not pursuing a conventional degree is the right thing for you in your chosen field. All right. Next, I have a question for Doc Bones on something called a TENS device. It's exactly what it sounds like as far as spell, but it's an acronym, T-E-N-S, TENS device. What is that? Doc will tell you all about it here uh, right now. Uh, Doc, take it away. Hi, Joe Alton, MD here, also known as Dr. Bones of the survival medicine website, doomandbloom.net. 
now with close to a thousand articles, videos, and podcasts, a thousand, wow, on medical preparedness. I'm also the co-author, along with my lovely wife, Nurse Amy, of the 700-page third edition of the Survival Medicine Handbook, The Essential Guide for When Medical Help is Not on the Way. This week's question for the expert counsel comes from James, who writes, With TENS devices, electrotherapy now available over the counter for as little as 30 bucks, can you please discuss how this can be used day-to-day and in an extended emergency as part of our medical preps? Also, are there any off-label uses? Thank you, James, from behind enemy lines in California, but leading the resistance. Good for you, James. By the way, ignore the bird. There's a parrot in this room, and he makes noise every so often. So here goes. James, TENS units have been around since 1974, but most people really don't know much about them. TENS stands for Transcutaneous Electrical Nerve Stimulation, T-E-N-S, and is a type of therapy that uses low-voltage electrical current in a small battery-powered machine for pain relief. TENS units are about the size of a pocket radio. Usually you attach a couple of electrodes. These are wires that conduct electrical current from the machine to your skin. The electrodes are often placed on the area of pain or nearby, creating a circuit of electrical impulses that travel along nerve fibers. The frequency and intensity of the electrical current can be adjusted, usually falling just short of causing muscles to visibly twitch, and sessions usually last about 15 minutes or so. When the current is delivered, some people experience less pain. Some people experience it during, and some people experience less pain after the actual procedure. This may be because the electricity from the electrodes, for lack of a better word, I guess, scrambles or otherwise suppresses normal pain signals. Some people believe that the electrical stimulation of the nerves may help the body to produce natural painkillers called endorphins, which may block the perception of pain. Several different types of illnesses and conditions have pain that might be treated with TENS units. Muscle, joint, or bone problems such as osteoarthritis or fibromyalgia may improve, as well as other issues leading to lower back pain or neck pain like tendinitis or bursitis. Some lesser-known purposes for TEN units, well, they include helping to alleviate labor pain, pain from TMJ, jaw pain, or dental procedures, pain near healing wounds, and pain perhaps from chronic non-orthopedic conditions, such as even cancer. Some places not to place TENS units include on the eye, over an open wound, directly on the spinal column, near a pacemaker or similar device, over the carotid arteries in the neck, and directly on a malignant tumor. Indeed, some data suggests that it might actually accelerate cell growth. Like many other remedies, the hard data is sometimes fuzzy on how effective a TENS unit is, and the effects may differ from person to person. My advice, though, use all the tools in the medical woodshed. This is Joe Alton, MD, that old Dr. Bones, wishing you the best of health and good times and bad. Thanks for listening. Hey, do Nurse Amy and me a big favor by following us on Twitter at Prepper Show, on our YouTube channel at Dr. Bones Nurse Amy, Shut Up Bird, and our podcast, The Survival Medicine Hour at blogtalkradio.com. Also, don't forget that the Member Support Brigade gets a special coupon code for discounts off our medical kits and individual supplies at store.doomandbloom.net. Thanks again. So uh, who else got a good laugh out of Shut Up Bird just thrown in there? I, With, with my vocal Lucy Lou the uh, dog, I, I understand that completely. I, I, I always wonder when I'm going to start hearing, 
And she's sitting on the floor right now looking at me going, yeah, you're not paying attention to me, dude. It's coming soon. Anyway, next question I have is for Tim Glantz on tents and specifically installing a uh, protective uh, barrier so that you can run a wood stove and have your chimney go through the roof of your tent. Tim, take it away. Hey there, Jack and all Survival Podcast listeners. Tim Glantz here with Old Grouch's Military Surplus with an answer for Clayton. Ask him about you buying a used tent. And uh, Clayton asked about buying a uh, what he said was a used GP mod tent, say 12 by 12. And uh, Jack and I are both thinking he might mean a GP medium if he's talking about U.S. ones. But also, uh, based on... Uh, Location in Vancouver Island, he could mean a Canadian tent that probably Jack and I are neither familiar with. However, his question will be uh, be the same. Uh, it doesn't have a stove pack jack already, uh, and that actually tells me he's not talking about a GP medium unless somebody's changed it because it should have two. Uh, but he wants to put a stove pipe jack in to be able to run a stove pipe inside his tent. And he, he thought about uh, getting a welder's blanket and high temp silicone with some sewing, uh, but... Uh, Actually, Clayton, it's easier than that. Uh, if you go online and Google, you can find people selling stovepipe jacks pre-made that you can simply cut out the right size square in the material of your tent, sew it in there, seal it, and then you've got a properly made, easy-to-install one. And that's really the only way I would I would do it because you want one that's designed to be in direct contact with that hat stovepipe. Uh, there are companies that sell brand-new ones, and there are uh, places online where you can buy surplus ones. Or uh, a tip, if you find somebody with a tent that has started to dry rot or otherwise go bad, one of the military canvas tents, the stovepipe jacks are a totally different material, and usually you can go and salvage those out of them. So if you've got one that somebody's throwing away a tent, you can go in and cut that out, remove the old canvas or vinyl from around it, and sew it right into yours. Uh, he mentions he's got access to a heavy-duty sewing machine that would take care of it, so that's good. Or you can use one of the little speedy stitchers. Uh, which are very handy to have, and I recommend everybody that has a tent uh, of this size have one in with the tent because you can make emergency repairs for those. Uh, we sell them on our website, or you can get them all, all over the place. Any outdoor store should have them. Uh, anybody that has any kind of canvas or leather or nylon heavy-duty gear, even if it's just tactical gear, needs one of those speedy stitchers, just as an aside, because the first time you use it, it'll save you the money and the aggravation for whatever you've had to repair. But, Clayton, that's it. Uh, just look for either a used military stovepipe jack or just Google tent stovepipe jack, and you'll find ones that are uh, pre-made and ready for you to sew in. And that is the right way and the safe way to use it, and it's really the only way I'd do it because you're talking about sleeping in this tent probably, and you don't want something where that canvas is going to catch fire on you in the middle of the night otherwise. Hope that helps, and uh, thanks for the question. And always, Jack, thanks for the great podcast. And all you out there in TSP land, uh, if you haven't checked out uh, on my email list or my Facebook page, we're having a really big uh, ammo can sale right now. Uh, everything is marked down uh, a good bit. And once you use your TSP member discount, which you all should have access to if you're supporting Jack with his member support brigade, uh, it really takes the price on the cans almost pretty much down to my cost. But I'm doing that because I bought a whole bunch more than I can really store in order to get a good deal. So we're moving some along basically at cost to clear some room up on that. So check that out, uh, oldgrouch.com. And if you're on Facebook, just look us up on Facebook, follow us there, and you can catch all the stuff we post there. Thanks a lot, and hope everybody has a great day.
All right, so I have added a, a link to the show notes today for the Speedy Stitcher on Old Grouch's website and a link to the page where he has all his ammo cans uh, listed. And he has some pretty good deals there. So if you're in the market for either, uh, you may want to check those out. And remember, always when you're shopping at Tim Glantz's Old Grouch Military Surplus, get your discount. That's why if you're an MSB member, you pay for MSB so that you can get your money back with these discounts uh, that add up if you use them over a year really well enough to always make your money back. Anyway, next question I have is for Erica Strauss on canning tea. Uh, I almost suggested that she just uh, reply back with this one and just say, hey, you know, there's a, this really not a good idea. Uh, but she thought she could make something good out of the response, and you know what? She did. So, Erica, take it away. Should we be canning herbal teas? And uh, if not, why not? Hello, TSP. Happy Friday. This is Erica Strauss from Northwest Edible Life, nwedible.com, calling in today to answer a question from Kathy. Kathy's got kind of an interesting one. She asks, is it possible to safely can homemade herb tea, and will it still retain its healing properties? Background, I like to drink iced herb tea made from our plants, but I don't always have time to make it. My new daughter-in-law is trying to drink three cups of tea a day from red raspberry leaves, and having it pre-made in a jar all ready to drink would be very helpful this summer. Can we do it? What about sweetening it with honey before canning? Thanks so much. Kathy. Well, okay, Kathy, I'm really sorry to tell you this, but I don't think canning your tea is a good idea. Although many iced tea drinks are on the market commercially canned, there's just absolutely no guidance for home canners as to the acidity levels of the leaves and the herbs that you might use in your herbal teas. So, for example, if we treat a raspberry leaf like a green leafy vegetable, the suggestion, the, the guidance would be that we would have to pressure can that for an hour and a half. Um, or if we treated herbal tea like a sort of kind of vegetable broth, maybe we're still looking at 20 to 25 minutes in a pressure canner, depending on the size of the jar. So obviously that kind of over-processing of tea is not going to give us the kind of results we want, either with the medicinal quality or just the flavor quality. I mean, talk about over-extraction. So the bottom line is, if there is a way to safely home can tea, I can't find it. But I can assure you that if it exists, it involves a ton more work and energy than just making your tea fresh in big batches and sipping it throughout the week would be. So... I'm sorry, but no, you can't can your tea. But the good news is I've got a way for you to continue to make those herbal iced teas for you and your daughter-in-law in a way that is going to save you a ton of time and probably make you a better brew. Now, this method is as easy as it gets. It's called cold brewing. It's the simplest way to make summer iced teas from standard tea, uh, Camellia sinensis, I think is the Latin terminology, or from herbal tea mixes. You'll end up with a big pitcher of tea in the end, and you'll keep it in the fridge, and you can sip on that for several days before you'll need to make more. So here's what you can do to have fresh herbal tea ingredients like mint, lemon balm, chamomile, hibiscus, etc. turn into big batch iced tea. I haven't tried this specifically with raspberry leaf, which you mentioned, but I I think it would work just as well. I've made raspberry leaf tea in a more traditional tea brewing way, and it, it tends to work just like the other leafy tea ingredients. 
So I will just sort of emphasize that these ratios I'm about to give aren't for dried tea leaf and herbs. I'm going to get to that ratio in a minute. But for fresh leaves, you know, stuff you just picked off the plant, you know, from your garden, fresh, still green, non-dried leaves, the ratio is for a quart of tea, you're going to need one quarter cup of firmly packed aromatic leaves. Um, by weight, which is more accurate, this is a half ounce of fresh herb leaves per quart of water. And that ratio works for nearly every soft leafy herb. If you get into something like rosemary, which is quite dry and very powerful in flavor, you're going to want to create a blend just because the flavor can be so overpowering or cut back on the total amount. So if you want to make a gallon of this fresh herbal tea through the cold brew method, you'd want two ounces or about one cup of fairly well-packed fresh leaves. And this seems like a ton of leaves until you actually grow plants like lemon balm or mint and you realize that in season you can't keep them picked enough. What you want to do is add your herbs to an appropriate size pitcher and then just cover them with the right amount of tepid water based on that ratio. Water right out of the tap, assuming you live someplace with good, delicious, clear, clean, healthy water is fine. Otherwise, you will want to use filtered water. But that's it. That's all the work you have to do. You put a little cover or a piece of plastic wrap on top of the pitcher, and you pop your herbal tea to steep in the fridge overnight. Now, you will notice that at no point did I say you had to bring the water to a boil. That's because this is the cold brew method. And for summertime tea brewing, it's fantastic. You don't have to heat up your kitchen. You don't have to get a big pot of water boiling and get all that humidity in the air. Um, it's one of the reasons I really like this method for iced teas. In the morning, taste your tea. It's going to be herbal and clean and fragrant with little to no bitter components. You want to strain out the leaves and toss them on the compost, you know, or don't, because honestly, sometimes I leave the leaves in there if I know I'm going to drink the tea within just a few days. If you forget to strain your tea for a couple extra hours in the morning, what I'm saying is nothing bad is going to happen. Cold brewing is such a gentle way of extracting the flavor from fresh or dried leaves that you're not going to get an over-extracted or bitter infusion, even if you let it go a little longer than you normally would. And then you just keep your tea in the fridge. It'll be ready whenever you want it. You can sweeten the batch with honey or with simple syrup. Liquid sweeteners do tend to work better in cold beverages than granular sugar, um, just because granular sugar tends to sort of like clump at the bottom and not dissolve very well in cold liquid. And herbal tea made this way should last at least four or five days in the fridge, assuming that you did strain it by at least day two. This technique also has the advantage that the antioxidant level in the cold brew tea is higher than in teas that were root hot and then allowed to cool. So in a situation like with your daughter-in-law, where you're really aiming to maximize the medicinal aspect of the herbal, it's a good choice to go cold brew. Now to translate this technique for dry herbs or teas, the method is the same, but the quantity is different because dried herbs are of course much more concentrated in their flavor than fresh herbs. So you want one generous tablespoon of dried crushed herbs per quart, or four cups of water. If your herbs are home dried, sometimes they can be whole leaf and very light and fluffy. And if that's your situation, give them a little crumble before you measure them just so you can get a more accurate measurement. And if you don't love math, again, this ratio for dried herbs is two rounded tablespoons per half gallon and a very generous quarter cup per gallon of water. 
but everything else is the same. The method is the same. You pop the herbs in the water, you stick it in the fridge overnight, bada bing, bada boom. And this method is literally so simple. You could have all the herbal tea in your fridge all summer that you could ever want for no more than maybe 10 or 15 minutes of total work over the whole summer. And most of that work is just going to be waiting for the water to fill up the pitcher. So I definitely recommend cold brewing over canning when it comes to tea convenience. Now to look at this question from a slightly different angle, I think this is such an interesting question because it really speaks to time optimization on the homestead. There are those of us, and I'm raising my hand here, who look for ways to optimize our productive life so much that sometimes we can make some silly, maybe not actually that productive decisions in the name of saving time. And thinking about taking the time and energy to can tea is kind of a good example of this. I don't want to pick on Kathy here at all. That's not my goal. I love this question, and I know where Kathy's coming from. She's coming from a thought process of efficiency and of being supportive for her daughter-in-law. But, you know, to be honest, my first reaction to this question is, you know, anyone who doesn't have time to make tea doesn't have time to can anything. And I say that as someone who will ask, hmm, you know, could I batch this process for maximum efficiency? And I say that about almost everything. You know, could I batch canned beans? Can I batch produce videos? Could I batch recipe tests? Can I batch plant seedlings? I even have a blog post where I examine the most physically efficient way to process strawberries for jam. So I'm a big fan of turning sort of an annoying little routine chore into one big task that then makes the nagging little stuff go away for a while. So I feel like I really understand Kathy's thought process in asking this question. And to me, this isn't just a question about tea. It's also a question about time management on the homestead. And, you know, knowing when to apply that Henry Ford efficiency mentality and when not to is kind of important. If we misapply a hyper-mechanical mindset to a task that doesn't really lend itself to batch processing efficiency, we actually end up creating more work for ourselves. It's sort of the time management equivalent of penny-wise, pound-foolish. I'll give one more analogy here. My father is a really good amateur woodworker. He likes making patio furniture and toys for his grandkids and shelving to keep my mom's sense of organization really happy. So my dad loves building stuff and he loves building jigs for his woodworking. Sometimes I think he loves building jigs more than he loves the actual building of the thing. So he builds these jigs for his router and his various saws. He likes being precise and a good jig helps ensure precision. And a jig is basically a way to make batch processing a woodworking job a lot easier. So if you're going to make a hundred of the same cut, you know, you really need a jig. If you're going to make five of the same cut, well, you know, maybe you need a jig, depending. But making a jig for a single cut, that's a bit silly. It's a misapplication of efficiency. So I just want to leave you guys with that thought to kind of chew on. There are times in our productive or homesteading lifestyle where we can spend more time looking for the ultimate efficiency hack than we honestly would have spent just sort of taking the slow boat to our goal in the first place. So just be aware of that trap. Look for the more efficient solution always, but don't over-optimize yourself into a corner. You know, don't throw good time after bad and admit when the solution really is to just do the routine task day in and day out. Sometimes that really is the more efficient solution.
So, all right, guys, those are my thoughts on tea and on time for this week. Uh, this has been Erica Strauss for the Expert Council. You can come visit me anytime at Northwest Edible Life, my website, nwedible.com. I'm also on Patreon now, hat tip to Jack, so patreon.com slash nwedible. Um, if you've got a question for me, send it to Jack, and I would be happy to answer it. Um, I sort of focus on homesteady grandma skills type stuff, so canning, fermentation, optimization of the productive home inside. Happy to answer all your questions on that. Thank you guys so much. And I will chat with you in a couple of weeks. Um, I completely agree with everything Erica said, especially the stuff toward the end about like not, not actually making more work for ourselves in thinking that we're making less work for ourselves. I do have one other simple solution though, to having a lot of tea on hand. If you like iced tea, Brew up a batch using about four times the herbs to the volume that you're going to brew, making yourself concentrate, and then dilute three to one when you use the concentrate. So what I mean by that is you take your French press mug, you figure out the total volume of it. You figure out if you were making four of them at once, how many, how much herbs would you use? You put that in your French press. Uh, you take your electric kettle so you're not heating your kitchen up. You flip the little lever on it and you make you know a liter of boiling water up. You dump it over your herbs. You set the little plunger thing at the top of your French press, and you cover it, and you sit it aside for about 10 minutes. After about 10 minutes, uh, maybe 20 minutes in this case, because we're trying to make a concentrate, you slowly push your plunger to the ground, and then you take that and you pour it into a ball jar, and you throw that in your refrigerator. Uh, if you have a one-quart ball jar, basically you have a gallon worth of tea there, and you can either make this up as you go, dumping a little bit of it into a cup and then adding a, you know three parts water to it over ice. Or you can you know make a couple of these up at the beginning of the week and get a gallon pitcher and just dump your thing in, fill it up with three you know three more quarts, your gallon pitcher's full and stick that in there. So you could on you know Sunday uh, make up four or five quarts of concentrate. And then throughout the week, you have four or five actual gallons of tea. That's another way to skin the same cat. There's a lot of ways to do the same thing and end up with pleasant results. And I think we should all pick the method that works best for us. I say that now because I'm about to bring Chef Keith Snow on, and I'm going to give you some different methodology after he talks about cooking great barbecue pork. We'll end up at the same place but with different paths. Keith, take it away. Hey, this is Chef Keith Snow with HarvestEating.com. Wanted to uh, address JR's question about smoked pork and tips and tricks. Now, first of all, um, JR, I think it's really cool that you are going to make a um, retirement party for this military person with 24 years of service, which is awesome. We need to do more of that stuff for our military people. And um, to help you, if this uh, event is not like tomorrow or anything, you can email me, Keith, at HarvestEating.com, and I'd like to supply the um, spice rub. I've got one of my Harvest Eating spice blends called Carolina Barbecue, and uh, it's all organic, really good stuff. And I'd like to provide that for you to use for this event free of charge. So if you just email me, and uh, assuming that this event is a little bit in the future, um, and we haven't missed it already, just let me know, and I'll send that over to you. Now, as far as tips and tricks, good barbecue is uh it's definitely a science and there's people that are way better at it than I am um but I know what I'm doing and I've done it for a lot of years and I've 
made a lot of mistakes, which is key to learning good barbecue. Our good buddy Jack knows a bit about barbecue as well. And uh, you do learn this by trial and error. Now, some of the critical points here, of course, you know, whenever you hear about barbecue, you hear low and slow. And this is uh, something that is definitely required to be followed. Now, you, you mentioned you've got a an electric smoker. If you can be smoking anywhere between 225 to 275 on the high side, you're going to be okay. Um, I smoke in a Weber Smoky Mountain um, cooker. And that thing, it's, it's an amazing little, um, little smoker and it goes right to 250 degrees. And as long as there's enough fuel in there, it'll stay like that, you know, overnight for sure. And depending upon how many of these pork butts or shoulders you're going to be smoking, you definitely are going to need, uh, you're going to need 12 to 14 hours of cooking. Now, this is the thing that a lot of people, um, newbies or, you know, weekend warrior types that want to, I'm going to get into barbecue. And you know how many times through the years I've gotten people in my audience emailing me. I've got friends coming over. You know, this is, it could be Friday afternoon. They've got a party, um, you know, the next day at, at uh, one o'clock, Saturday at one o'clock. And they, they think they're going to smoke a pork butt, you know, in seven hours or something. I'm going to wake up in the morning and how do I get it ready? You just can't do it like that. It's going to take a long time. And uh, 12 to 14 hours is, is usually, depending upon the size of, of the pork butt, um, what it's going to take. And the reason it takes that long is because the temperature of that big, giant hunk of meat has to slowly come up to um, close to 200 degrees before it's going to pull. And uh, when you're having pulled pork, it needs to be cooked so long and so slow that all those connective tissues, remember, that's very tough meat. All that connective tissue melts, and then um, you can pull the pork and have super tender pork. And that is just uh, something to keep in mind. Next thing is the smoke. Now, and again, this will probably cause a fiery debate, but I think mesquite is crap. I, I do not use uh, mesquite. I also think hickory is crap. And those are the two most common smoke sources you see out there, hickory smoke, barbecue, or mesquite, or whatever. I don't like either one of those flavors. I'm an oak guy. Um, some people use apple wood, and I've used apple wood before. Uh, cherry wood is, is great. Um, but for me, white oak is, is uh, awesome. Red oak is awesome. And when I smoke, I will take logs, you know, small, maybe 18-inch, 12-inch logs that fit in the bottom of my Smoky Mountain cooker, and I start out with lump charcoal, um, and I'll fill it up with lump charcoal. A lot of people use briquettes. Um, that's fine, too, but you're probably probably using an electric one, so you don't even need to worry about those sources, but you do need to worry about smoke, and I would go for oak, and depending upon where you live, but you, I think you're from New Mexico, getting oak might be tough. Um, ah, boy, I can send you spices, but I don't think I can send you a log. <laughs> so that um, this is going to be for you to decide. And the smoke definitely has a lot to do with the flavor of barbecue. Um, you go out there and take a chunk of pine and go smoke your barbecue, it's not going to be edible. So um, try to get oak if you can. The next... The next uh, Thing to keep in mind is not to burn it. Now, a lot of people will not control their um, smoker very well. And if that thing gets up over 300 or even at 250 for 12 hours, you're going to develop what we call a bark. And that is 
you know, crispy little bits of uh, pork on the outside, and that's best to be, you know, broken up and chopped up. That way, that gets distributed into the whole thing. Now, there's a thing, there's such thing as too much bark, and if you cook it a little too hot, a little too long, um, you don't have the you have you don't have it over indirect heat. You have too much heat, your water pan dries out, whatever it might be, you definitely can get too much bark. And that is not a good thing either. So what I recommend is looking to get to about 10 hours um, into your smoke. And a lot of times when, you know, this is serious business, when you're smoking, you know, don't plan on sleeping. I mean, a lot of times I'll set, if I'm doing an overnight smoke every about three or four hours, I'll set an alarm and get up and go out and check the smoker and make sure, in my case, I've got a cold water pan. I make sure that, that thing is full because um, that helps to regulate not so much the temperature, but it regulates how much heat gets to the bottom of the pork. You want it to be very indirect. And when that thing on the Smoky Mountain cooker, anyway, when that's full, you have very indirect heat. Um, also, you get some added moisture. But the point is, after about 10 hours, you want to check that thing, and there's a good chance that your bark will be fully developed. Now, if you run it another couple of hours, you can burn the outside of the pork and I see that all all along and there's a very fine line between a great bark and burnt pork so get yourself heavy duty foil now a lot of times I say that and people go out and they it's more expensive and they buy the trash foil now heavy duty foil and try to buy it in the two foot length and usually you're going to look for the Reynolds brand here and you want to take two big sheets of that so maybe like two by two and put two sheets, put one on top of each other. After 10 hours, grab your pork butt off of your smoker and wrap it carefully up in the foil and then put it back on there. Now it's still going to cook. The temperature is still going to rise. The tenderness is still going to increase, but you're not going to get any more burning on it. And that is a pretty key thing. So also temperature, you need to be able to check it and just see that you're getting close to the point where it's starting to pull. And that, again, that's going to be definitely up over 190 degrees, closer towards 200, and then it'll really um, be nice and soft. Now, the next thing that makes great pulled pork is the sauce. Now, there's two schools of thought. You can have, um, and you definitely, if you're trying to impress people, and uh, not so much impress, but make a magical experience going out and buying Cattleman's barbecue sauce in the store is not going to give you that. You can't, those store-bought sauces are not very good. Now, there is a company um, out in Colorado. What the heck is the name? It's called Red Law, Red Law Sauce Company. And you can buy some of their products in, um, what is it called, Whole Foods Market. They do make a very good bottled barbecue sauce. That's the only one that I've found that I would recommend. But, there's two schools of thought, thick tomato-based barbecue sauces or um, as you get in North Carolina where I live, as you go further from the mountains down into the Piedmont and then you get into the eastern section, the sauce, maybe it's because of the hot summers, I don't know, but the sauce tends to get less sweet and more vinegary and definitely thinner. Now, the sauce is always the, the crowning you know, thing on top of a great pulled pork sandwich. So you can imagine a great bun and a bun does not need to be big. You don't want a giant, you know, ridiculous bun. You want like maybe a little potato bun. It's just to hold the pork in place. You pile that stuff on there and then a squirt of this um, vinegar based sauce that I'm going to tell you about 
really makes it sing because you've got a very fatty meat. And if you can get something on there that's got flavor, a little spice, and also the key thing is some vinegar, that really helps kind of balance things out in your mouth. And that's very important to do. So having a good vinegar sauce is a critical thing. Also making sure that when you do chop up your barbecue, you... um Make sure you get some of that bark on the outside, which is basically burned up spices. You get that mixed in there. Now, the way to create the bark is you need to take your pork butts out of the package and you're going to rinse them off in the sink um, with cold water. And then you're going to pat them dry very well so they look kind of dry and do this, you know, either in the sink or on a big cutting board. And what I like to do is take maple syrup. Now, maple and pork go together terrifically. So take some, and I'm not talking about log cabin syrup. I said real maple syrup. Probably going to cost you seven or eight bucks for a bottle. Take about a half cup of it, pour it onto your pork butt, and then massage it all over with your hands. At that point, then you're free to apply the spices. Now, you can either use the spices that you're going to use, or if you allow me to send send you some of mine, you can use mine, whatever. You don't want to put, you know, one teaspoon of spices on a pork butt, and people do that. You want to put a bunch of it on there. I mean, almost use a whole package and really pat it on there and it should form a very nice um, crust and leave it sit for a while before you put it on the smoker. And, you know, maybe 20 or 30 minutes. But you really want to press it in everywhere and that's what's going to form your crust. Now, going back to the end of the smoke, you're all done, you've got it chopped up. Now, having a great vinegar sauce is key. And for those of you um, that have access to Jack's site. I'm going to give him a uh, link or just a, just give him this recipe and you can use this. Now, barbecue vinegar sauce is not hard to make. There's no cooking involved. And basically my recipe for it is a cup of sugar um, and then I use a half a cup of uh, oil, like a vegetable oil, like a grapeseed oil, a quart of cider vinegar. Then it's got black pepper, celery seed, cayenne pepper, kosher salt, dry mustard, and then a couple of key ingredients, smoked paprika, which is awesome stuff. And then also I like to put in chipotle ketchup. And there's a brand of it called Melissa's. And you could find it in the condiment section of most grocery stores, specialty stores, that sort of thing. If you can't find uh, Melissa's ketchup, you can take, and this is only four tablespoons of ketchup. You could put a chipotle pepper in there and just Blend it up a bit. Now, when you mix all that stuff together, and don't worry, folks, uh, Jack will post this uh, vinegar sauce recipe. When you have all this stuff mixed up, try to buy some squirt bottles because that is a great way to do that. You can get those right on Amazon. Just do a search for you know plastic squirt bottles, or if there's a restaurant supply store, you can buy them. Just nip off the end of them. You fill your um, vinegar sauce in there, and then people can just do a little squirt on top of their um, pork. Another thing that I like to do is I always, when I have barbecue, I'll always have some um, of the rub on the side for people to, and this isn't rub that's touched raw pork, by the way. This is clean out of the package in a little jar or a little um, you know, serving dish. That way they can sprinkle some of the um, spices right on top of the pulled pork and then add a little, their, little vinegar sauce. 
And that's about it, man. That's uh, a little long. Jack's going to kill me. I'm almost 13 minutes in. But, uh, JR, I hope that works for you. And, and uh, let me know if I can help you out. And congrats for helping out a military person. That's an awesome thing. And, folks, uh, we talk a lot about spices and all that. Of course, you can go to Amazon.com. Just search Harvest Eating. You can purchase uh, a number of my spices in there. We are sending lots of inventory to Amazon these days. You can also check out HarvestEating.com, the store there. And don't forget about my new website, TastyEducation.com, where you'll find my food storage feast course. And I'm also allowing people to register for my paleo beef course, which is uh, in the works and being um, new stuff is published there all the time. So that's it. Uh, Jack, thanks for what you're doing. Everybody have a great weekend, and we'll uh, we'll catch you in the next show. Send in some more questions. Take care. Okay, um, if, if you're cooking on a wood-fired, you know, where you're actually running an actual fire, not an electric smoker, which the, the guy that asked the question actually has an electric smoker. So I'm going to take it more from the electric smoker side for you now, um, and we'll kind of come to a, 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 some, some dif- differences of opinion here. Um, because even though I'm going to take this from the, uh, the electric smoker side, I'm going to tell you I don't think it takes anywhere near this long to do a pork shoulder. It just doesn't. Uh, it can, and it's okay if you do, but it doesn't have to. I can definitely make you a pork shoulder in about seven hours. Uh, no problem. And I also want to start out with on the, the smoker side. Now, the whole thing that hickory's crap and mesquite's crap, I think different woods have different qualities that work well with different meats. And I actually think that oak is a great wood for pork. I think hickory is an outstanding wood for brisket. I think mesquite is an outstanding wood more for cooking than smoking. Uh, if you're going to be doing fajitas or something like that, chunk mesquite it, cook down to coals, and cooking over mesquite is fantastic, cooking at higher temperatures. Mesquite works really well for that. I've never really been a fan with mesquite for smoking. I've been a very big fan of a mesquite character in smoke uh, or slow cooking, like we're cooking uh, a big steak on a grill and we're using charcoal briquettes and we're putting a little bit of mesquite in with that. That's all good and well. Long smoking on mesquite I'm not a fan of because it's very difficult to actually do because it burns so damn hot. It's such a dense wood. Um, oak is fantastic for pork and for beef, but really for pork. And I often use oak here when I'm smoking, either using uh, the, 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 the slow and sear or the smokinator in my Weber kettle, or when I'm smoking on my big side box New Braunfels smoker. I have a great big, giant, huge side box smoker. The concept of 225 degrees, that is a fantastic temperature. If you can get your cooker running 225 to 250, somewhere in there, that's great. If you're going to use an electric smoker, it's probably not going to happen. It's just a different thing. We take this big piece of cold meat or several big pieces of cold meat and we stick it in what essentially is a mini fridge. Very, very well insulated mini refrigerator. That meat is radiating cold while your heater element and your smoker element at the bottom are radiating smoke and heat. It's like turning on that you have, uh, let's say you have a house with two zones of, of air conditioning and heating. And it's a one-story house. So half the house is running off one side, we got one system, and half's running off the other because it's a big house. And you crank your air conditioner on one side and your heater on the other side. You crank one a little more than the other. It's going to take a long time before one wins out over the other. That's what's going on in an electric smoker. And I imagine Keith has probably not done a lot of smoking in electric smokers because he went all in on his particular smoker. So when I take and put, you know, and I can do four 
pork shoulders in my Bradley smoker. I have a link to the Bradley smoker if you guys want to use it uh, in, in the show notes today. When I put that in there at first, uh, you'll see that smoker come up to about 110 degrees, and it'll take a long time to get to 120, 130, 140. And it's not directly tracking. I don't want you to misunderstand me, but there's a huge correlation between the temperature in that smoke chamber and the temperature of the meat itself. And this is why you really have to watch electric smokers because all of a sudden the temperature will start ramping up really fast and you have to keep backing it down, keep an eye on things, keep things under control. Because as that meat starts hitting 160 degrees, 150, 160 degrees, where we're about to hit something we call the stall in, in barbecue, it's going to start bringing that temperature up inside that cook chamber. It's going to get up 180, 190. And when that meat comes out of the stall, if you're not ready and prepared for it, it'll run straight up. And when you hit 225 degrees in an electric smoker, what you have is just fat and juice pouring out of your meat, and it can get down into the heater element and overflow your catch pan and set the damn thing on fire. Ask me how I know, because I was told it was completely set and forget when I first got one, and I had two briskets cut in half in there, and I, I caught fire to it. Fortunately, we didn't lose the briskets, and everything ended up being okay, but I had to end up using a garden hoe and stand off to the side and behind and open the Bradley smoker, and flames were shooting out of it, and even though they say not to do water on a grease fire, I got a garden hose with a, with a nozzle and got down low and just and shut the flames down. Otherwise, it would have burned up my whole damn smoker. So understand that these numbers are different with different technologies. Now, here's where I differ. I don't say, well, smoke it for 10 hours or 8 hours or 12 hours. I, I don't do that with barbecue. I believe in getting a good uh, dual-probe thermometer. One will monitor the heat on the grill, the smoker, the chamber, whatever. One probe will does that, and the other probe goes into your meat. And if you have multiple pieces of meat... Pick your 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 you know kind of your thickest meat that's furthest away from the heat source, and start monitoring your meat temperature. And what you're looking for is to find the stall point. That's when we're going to go to foil. You're going to hit that at about 140 to 150 degrees. What begins to happen at that point is your moisture is coming out of the meat at such a rate as steam that it's creating basically evaporative cooling. So the meat is able to discharge steam at such a rate that it becomes very difficult to move it up in temperature. So you see the steady, slow moving up in temperature, this big plateau, and then the meat runs off and gets up to your 180, 190, 200 degree temperature, wherever you're going to finish at. Okay. If we wrap at that 140, 145, 150 degrees, you can determine it for yourself. Most of the competition cooks have started to go to the wrap or the Texas cheat or crush, depending on who you are, how you call it at 140 degrees. I'll tell you why. When meat gets to 140 degrees internal temperature, all that beautiful smoke going over it, it no more is going in there. It, you're just not getting any more flavor into it. Now, this is going to prevent you from getting that beautiful bark. If we want bark, we can go ahead and we can put that bark on it. But generally, if we're cooking pork to pull, there ain't much to the bark left by the time we get done with it and pull it anyway. Okay? We're going to just go wrap it up then, and this is a great time to go to 225 degrees. Now, do you know what you can set and forget at 225 degrees? Well, that would be your oven. So what I believe in doing then is you get a great big disposable aluminum pan. For pork, this is just beautiful. Slice up some white onions. If you want to gild the lily a bit, chop up you know four apples and throw them in with your onions. 
and wrap your pork and set your pork, and you can usually fit two uh, shoulders, usually the size that they get from the store, not a whole shoulder, but the cut Boston shoulders, into one big giant pan on one level in your in your stove. Now, this is why you might use a smoker and keep it in there and do it all through the smoker because you might not be able to fit enough in there. But you set those in there and you set that oven to 225 degrees. And you take your probe from your probe thermometer, you run it in your oven door, and you stick it in your meat. And you want to bring that meat to around somewhere between 190 and 200. And most competition cooks will tell you it's somewhere in there. Some will say it might be 203. They might be telling you the truth. They might be leading you on. They might be, but almost every competition cook will keep that last number that they cook to a secret. 190 to 195 degrees is going to give you what you want. And the big thing is you want to get there slow. You want to get there slow because the slower you get there, the more you're breaking down that connective tissue. If you push the meat to 190 degrees quickly, and you can do it, then you're going to get very tough, very dry meat, even wrapped. It's just not going to be very good. So that's kind of what I do. Now, let's say I want to bark. Okay, then we, we unwrap it. And we take that meat and we put it back onto our smoker or our grill and we heat it for a while. We firm it up is what they call it. And if you do this method and you use that temperature as a guide to when you stop worrying about smoking that meat, and even if you leave it on the smoker, you know, you wrap it then. And again, even if it's on the smoker, I highly recommend you take a big aluminum pan, put apples and onions in there. Okay? It's going to make a lot of sense here in a second. Even with it heavily wrapped. As that meat comes up to 190 degrees, a lot of moisture, a lot of juice and fat is going to come out of that meat. Those onions and apples are going to cook. Throwing some garlic cloves in there, not a bad idea either. And they're going to cook in that pork juice. When we pull our pork, if we want to really kind of have something awesome going on, we take those onions and apples and we mix that back into our pork. And that's an incredible, it's not a barbecue sauce, but it's an incredible flavor addition to the pork then you can add your additional uh you know barbecue or whatever or if you're making your own sauce you can take some of that juice and some of those onions and apples and take that and process it pulse it a couple times in your food processor or your blender or your nutrient or whatever and then make your sauce and blend that together and 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 that and then still mix it in so you're reinforcing the flavor profiles at that point Now, if you really want this to be the most succulent piece of pork you can get your hands on, when you get it to temperature, take it and put it in an igloo cooler and leave it for a couple hours. Just leave it in there holding the temperature in an igloo cooler. You know, maybe you can even wrap it in a towel if you want to. Usually I just you pull it up out because it'll be dripping out of that pan. So let it drip as much as you can. Lay down some paper towel in the bottom of your cooler Drop your shoulders in there and close it. And we'll continue to steam it. It won't climb. It might climb one or two degrees from carryover, but it's not going to get any real, really any hotter. And it'll just continue to tenderize. Now, this is not going to give you the bark. You won't miss it. You won't miss it. I think bark tastes good, and we like crispy, crunchy things. But if you want the best pulled pork, you don't really need bark. It's usually indicative of some level of overcooking. And what happens is the reason it tastes good to you is you've got some, so the bark's good. Then the, 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 the meat just under the bark is overcooked, but the meat in the center is cooked right. When you mix it all together, it evens it out. That's just my thought. Again, I'm not contradicting Keith. I'm just saying there's different ways to get to similar places. And this is kind of my, I know it's like a double on the cooking, almost a cooking show alone today. And now I'm hungry, 
but I got to finish up. So I got another question here. This one is for Michael Jordan. I'm making pollen patties for you bees. Hey, this is Michael Jordan, the Bee Whisperer from Cheyenne, Wyoming, with AB Friendly Company. Here to talk about bees, apiary management, and the making of meat. Let's talk about pollen patties and why. Beekeepers often ask me, at what time of the season should they feed the colonies pollen substitute? The availability of pollen or pollen substitute to a colony increases the production of brood. Because the enriched diet, the nurse bees are able to secrete lots of royal jelly. So they prepare cells for eggs and the queen deposits them. Suddenly, brood production is in full swing. The pollination industry thrives on large bee populations. Building large populations in the fall to send them to the first year to pollinate the almond fields. Without large populations of bees, we do not get splits and swarms and the honey productions are extremely low. You hear me say, you have to feed your bees. Feeding sugar water is not the only feed you have to feed your bees. And there are some additives such as oils and essential grasses that you can add to your teas when you feed the bees. But you also be needing to feed your bees pollen. One of the best pollen substitutes I think people can find is a field of cattail pollen. Cattails produce a long, hot dog-like stick full of pollen that just slipping over a Ziploc sandwich bag, cutting the cattail off and dropping it in the sandwich bag is an easy way to get lots of pollen to distribute in your beehive. The thing to understand about pollen or pollen substitute is that it is used for the, to feed the larva. Eggs don't eat it, pupa don't eat it, and the adults eat honey. But the larva are dependent on a supply of nutritious, highly protein food provided by pollen. The feeding system is indirect. Nurse bees actually consume the pollen, usually in the form of bee bread. The rich diet allows them to secrete royal jelly that is then fed to the youngest larva. As the larvae mature, they are switched over to diet of bee bread and honey. If they are fed royal jelly constantly, they would become queens. There will be a time when supplementing your bees with pollen is adventurous and needed. Remember, local weather and climate will have an impact on pollen supplies, as well as the selection of plants, the types of bees, and the size of the colony. And there are many other factors about pollen that, that are just not really added here. So by all means, if your colony needs pollen, give it to them. But for the normal colony, in the normal year, I strongly recommend that you wait until at least after a solstice. In the spring, you do not want your colony population to peak before the nectar flow. If you can build up your colony too soon, you'll have a kajillion bees with nothing to eat, and you'll spend a lot of time feeding them. In Wyoming, we feed pollen from the end of April to the start of June, and then one more time for nook builds at the end of July to the end of August, pulling brood for winter nooks for spring builds. I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to put a link for pollen substitute powder or patties. And I'm also going to put in my book of feeds, patties and masking scents. I think one good place to look for pollen patties 
is you can always look them at Man Lake. It's Man Lake FD200, the Pro Pollen Substitute. You can get it at a 10-pound pail, and that's just the powder. But if you prefer patties, Man Lake has the FD357 B-Pro patties with even Pro Health, and they're also 10-pound patties, or 10 pounds, each patty I think weighing about a pound. So-called pollen patties usually contains no pollen at all, but they're designed to stimulate real pollen. They can be purchased or ready to be used and can be made at home, even if you want to mix them. They're like I said, I, I put a couple recipes in. The easiest method of feeding pollen back to the bees is to place the pollen in a shallow dish and put it under the lid of the beehive. Another method is to remove three to four frames from the super and place a dish of pollen in the queen excluder or on top of the queen excluder. The bees will come up and feed on this pollen only as they need it. The interesting note is that bees will feed on the pollen only when they want it. They're not going to store it like they do with, if you had sugar syrup. Some, bee, some beekeepers mix the pollen with sugar syrup and make a putty-like mixture. A handful of this mixture is then pushed over the top of the top bars of the frames, over top the brood nest, and then it's smeared across the, over the top of the queen excluder. The, bee will feed, the bees will go up and feed on the mixture over the next two to three week period. During the springtime, when the bees are really hungry for pollen, a strong beehive will eat about 250 grams of feed per week. That's a lot of pollen. Remember, as your bees grow, the more you have to feed them. The more you feed them, the more they grow. Remember, good beekeeping means that if you're feeding your bees, making sure that they don't starve, keeping them warm, and keeping them active, controlling their interests so they're not in the violation of any laws or so they don't hurt other people that may be in the area, you're becoming a great beekeeper. So that's my take on pollen patties. Right now, I think, is the best time to put them out there. I recorded this here in May 16th. So I think that this is a, one of the best times to put out pollen patties to get your brood built hard. Um, I know that when June starts, I stop feeding at all. Uh, welfare is cut off on all the bees, and they go straight to foraging. So, hey, this is your bee whisperer friend, Michael Jordan, from AB Friendly Company out of Cheyenne, Wyoming, reminding you to get your honey from a beekeeper you respect. Help out a college cottage industry. And be that better person and help out your fellow man. Because one day, you're going to need that help too. Good stuff from Michael Jordan. Really great stuff. I want to um, point out that he mentioned um, of a document on different types of bee feed and making it up. There is a link to it in the show notes. He sent that along. I've rendered it out into a PDF and uploaded it to our server. So if you want to get that document uh, to better feed your bees and know all of your options, uh, not just pollen patties, you can go ahead and come on over and get that one uh, from today. Um, this, this next one is... Uh, an interesting uh, one that I thought was a, a really good one to do today, and it just came in, 
and uh, this morning, and I thought this would be a good kind of uh, cleanup batter thing for me to handle on a Friday, as I usually do. This comes from Rob, and here's what his question is. He says, do you think the government can crack down on cryptocurrency like they did with gold in the 60s? Details, my wife and I were talking cryptocurrency, and she is hesitant to put money in crypto because of fear of government will soon regulate alternative currencies out of existence or making anyone who uses them a criminal. She also has concerns about paying bills and rendering goods and services with anything other than federally backed currency. I have been hearing a lot about Swarm City and others making platforms for individuals to do business together without a central authority. This sounds good, but with the stroke of a pen, can this all be made illegal? Thanks for the show, Rob. Um, well, you can make it illegal. That doesn't mean that you can stop it. Um, and I think making it illegal right now would be really, really difficult. And what are you going to make illegal? All cryptocurrencies? Bitcoin? What are you going to make illegal? Do you understand that the, uh, the FTC just came a gnat's ass away from allowing Bitcoin to be put into ETFs? And they probably eventually will. You have to understand something about the state. The state's goal is survival, and the state will do whatever the state thinks is best in the interest of the state for survival. Well, if you go to war here, you're going to lose. So when do states choose not to go to war? When they know that they're going to lose. Not when they know a war can't be won, but when they know they're going to lose. There's a big difference. Um, or that they don't intend to win the war. But when they know they will lose, they find ways around the war. We have uh, a senior official in the United States uh, Economic Department now coming out and saying that we need to, we need to learn about Bitcoin. We need, to be under, we need to understand it rather than fear it. Um, these are all signs that they understand that this is this is about to take over the world. There's nothing new about it. So they want to try to co-opt it. They want a piece of it. They want to control it. They want to regulate it. But they're trying to regulate the first generation of cryptocurrencies while the next generation of cryptocurrencies are coming out and doing things the first ones never even dreamed about. You know, Dash allowing two people to do business and no one to know who did business with whom. Uh, you know, they're going to regulate it out of existence. Oh, okay, so that worked really good with drugs, right? Because they regulated marijuana out of existence. You, you bring up gold, well, how'd that work out for them? And they didn't crack down on gold ownership in the 60s, by the way. They did it in the 30s, and it was the 60s and 70s when activists said, you know, this is just stupid, and people were going out with a, a bar of gold in their hands with a sign that said, arrest me, go ahead. And, of course, it made the government look stupid, so they couldn't do it. The biggest threat to cryptocurrency right now isn't the state. It's actually the people that control the state, and that would be the banking system. The banking system stands to lose trillions of dollars here, and yet they still can't compete with it. How are you going to shut down something that's decentralized? I mean, it's like playing the biggest game of whack-a-mole ever. Some of these new organizations... You know, Swarm City you mentioned. I, I happen to have about 550 bucks worth of Swarm City tokens because uh, I think they're going to be very, very effective at what they do. But could the government go after Swarm City? Well, since the, the people building it are known, I guess you could go after those people, but that blockchain would still exist. It doesn't exist on one place. It's decentralized. It's everywhere. Can you hack it? If you could hack it, they would have. There's been instances of exploits being exploited like happened with Ether, and of course the community responded to it, built up hash power, and created a hard fork, and then created the new Ethereum. And Ethereum Classic's still around, and people are trying to work with that and make it what it was originally promised to be. And, and see, it, it, there's just too much nimbleness 
you're going to try to make people a criminal. Well, they've tried that. Russia tried it. Russia basically came up, didn't, they didn't pass a law. They said, well, we found this law that actually makes this illegal. So we're going to enforce this law from now on. And the Russian people said, we don't give a shit. We don't care. You can't do anything. You can't fight this. We're going to use it if we want to. Now, that made it for a time in Russia where there weren't, you know, bit, we take Bitcoin signs in windows of shops. But if somebody took Bitcoin, you gave them Bitcoin, what the hell are they going to do about it? How are they going to, how are they going to police this? It's the same thing as, it, it's actually far more complicated to attack, but it's the same thing as, as music downloads. Sure, they can shut down Napster and LimeWire popped up. And eventually the industry shifted to nobody buys music anymore unless they're still living in like, you know, 1985. People have subscription services now. You know, uh, Apple Radio, I guess is what it's called. Uh, Spotify, uh, What's the one that I can't even think of the name of the one I use now? Um, Dad gone it. It was as good as my memory is. Freaking Pandora, right? I mean, so if you go to YouTube, you can listen to any song you want to. Somebody's embedded in a video. The fact is that what happened was like Napster came out and changed the entire industry. There was no going back. There was no putting the genie back in the bottle. And you could actually go after Napster. It was a company. How do you go after a decentralized organization? it's not possible. Now, it's not that they can't go after it. It's not that they can't make examples out of certain people. It's not that they can't interfere with certain cryptos. But the speed of evolution is is at a rate government cannot keep up. They can't, and they're not going to. I actually think this is what your wife is saying. I don't understand this, and I'm scared we'll lose money, so I'm going to come up with a false objection to to avoid that actual discussion. I could be wrong. I don't want to put words in anybody's mouth, but that's what I think is really good. It's the same as the person that says, well, you know what? I don't want a garden. That's not real survivalism because if the end of the world comes, people will come steal my garden. Well, they'll come steal your house, the stuff you've stored. I mean, it's just what you're saying is you don't want a garden. If you don't want a garden, fine. You don't want to make that form of investment, fine. But but the the the, the FUD, the, the government will shut it down. If the government was capable of shutting it down, they would have shut it down by now. When Bitcoin came out, it followed the, 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 the path that everything that's revolutionary always follows. And it's a version of a quote that's been you know misattributed to Gandhi, and I actually have a different way that I like to explain it. First, they ignore you. Then they mock you. Then they fight you, and the Gandhi quote is, then you win. No, what actually happens, and then what you're doing is embraced is self-evident. That's how true revolutionary ideas actually come about. The, the resistance just goes away. And it actually tries to pretend that it was never part of the resistance. Think of the, the civil rights movement in the 1960s, for instance. There were all these people out there openly speaking for the side resisting, giving everybody equal rights. And using words like the N-word, openly in public. Okay? And, and, and not being afraid to stand up and be a racist. And, and by the time that this all played out, and people started saying, we can't treat people, we can't tell people you're not allowed to sit in the front of the bus because you're black. We can't do that. All the people that are still racist never actually tend to talk that way publicly anymore. It just kind of goes away. Now, they're still there. 
but their numbers are far fewer. And most people that are old enough to have been those people, that were those people, are like, yeah, you know, that's wrong, and we should have never done it. And they, they've embraced this as self-evident. This is, this, is, this is playing itself out right now with gay marriage. Right now. Do you notice that the Republican Party now is concerned with the actual issue of protecting individual rights? In other words, if I don't want to make a cake for your gay wedding, I shouldn't have to. No matter how stupid that is, I shouldn't have to. Right? If you're a public official and you're told to give them a marriage license, well, you work for the state. You do what the state says. That's what working for the state is. But if you're a private business, I shouldn't have to serve you if I don't want to. And I think that's actually bigger. I think that, that goes back to if, if I don't want to serve you because you're black, I shouldn't have to. I think it's stupid. I think it's racist. I think it's ignorant. And I think in 2017, it's a very fast self-correcting problem. Okay, But all of a sudden, this whole thing that gay marriage is going to destroy the country, who's saying that now? A few far-fringe right people are, but no one's really saying that now. The, 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 the Supreme Court ruled. It's been in effect for about two years now. All the horrible things that were supposed to happen didn't happen, and everybody just kind of shuts up about it and goes away. Like, oh, well, if they have two people, I don't care. You know, you have the Republican convention basically embracing the concept of alternative lifestyle rights this time around, Donald Trump actually being the first person to speak at a, a, a national convention as the presidential nominee and using the LGBTQ, whatever the hell an acronym is, and saying it all and saying, we're going to protect these people. Why? Because the, the war was fought, the war was won by the side that basically said, we should be treated the same as everybody else, and now everybody just kind of goes, yeah, sure. Now, there's again, there's, there, that's a newer one, so there's still more resistance there. But if you notice how quiet that front got, how little you hear about it, how we're never actually going to fight that war again, that's cryptocurrency. That's cryptocurrency. People like me, for God's sakes, when crypto first came out, when Bitcoin first came out, this can't work. Why? Because it, was a, it, it absolutely was counter to the paradigm that I had in my head. Now, fortunately for me, I truly, I'm one of the few people, I think, in this space that truly understands money. I understand what money really is. And I think a lot of you do, by and large because of work that I've done here and work that people like Chris Martinson have done with Crash Course, actually explaining how money is created. But once you understand how money is created, it's still a leap to understand what money is. Money is an agreement. It's a ledger system. The money never was the value. I don't care if it's gold and silver. I don't care if it's bronze with some emperor's uh, you know, face on it. I don't care if it's a tally stick. I don't care if it's, a, it's actually a fiat currency or it's a fractional reserve debt-backed currency. Don't call the United States dollar fiat. It, it, fiat would be so much better than what we have. Fiat would literally be the government just says, we're going to print this much money this year, this is how much it's worth, and we say so by fiat. Where our, our money is actually lent into existence. It's a preposterous. It is, it is so simple to understand that the mind is repelled by it. In the words of Henry Ford, if the people of America truly understood the process of monetary creation and banking, there would be a revolution tomorrow morning. But there won't be, because it's so simple to understand that it repels the mind, and there won't be. Okay, But when you understand economic cre monetary creation, fractional reserve, and how money works, when you then take a, a honest look without your preconceived illusions or delusions or paradigms at Bitcoin and say, 
does Bitcoin function as money? You go, absolutely it does. And you can see all these ways in which it's superior. And then you start creating these altcoins. And like 400 of them have come and gone into oblivion already. You can't just go out and buy these things and think you're going to be rich. Bitcoin has staying power, though. And some of these other currencies are making valid value propositions. And they have to be looked at like a stock that you can spend. I think that's a better way to look at it. So you think of a stock. You think Ford Motor Company has value. So you go buy fiat dollars with it. But now your stock is denominated in dollars, right? So we go out and we buy Ford Motor Company stock. And the company's largely based on debt. And we're buying it with debt-based dollars. And it's still denominated in dollars. And we're judging it in dollars. And if the dollar takes a shit, even if the stock price holds, the stock price's actual value we can spend takes a shit too. Okay? And if we want to spend our money, and it's in Ford Motor Company, or Merck, or Johnson & Johnson, or you know all these companies that, that people would look at and say are, are solid investments... Coca-Cola, Frito-Lay, right? All these companies that have been around for a long time that pay dividends that are solid investments. Apple, Alphabet, which is Google. All these companies. You buy their stock. What do you have to do? If I decide that I want to sell you my car for $5,000 and you have $5,000 worth of Google stock, how can you buy my car with your Google stock? You have to go through a brokerage. You have to sell it. You pay capital gains on it. It's all public record because it's a publicly traded company. You get cash or you put it in your checking account and you write me a check or a money market account. You write a check against You give it to me and that goes through the banking system. If you have $5,000 worth of Bitcoin and you want to buy my car, I can set up an address and a wallet like Jack's, not Jack's me, J-A-X-X, Jax.io, great wallet, and I can just tell you what my Bitcoin address is. And you can just go, okay. And you just put that address in and send your $5,000 worth of Bitcoin directly to me. I have it. You don't. Here's a car. And Bitcoin, of course, has this problem where transactions are slow right now. Let's say I said, I want Dash. I want $5,000 worth of Dash. Well, you go to Shapeshift.io and convert your Bitcoin into Dash and then send me the Dash. Or if I want Litecoin, you can do that. And it can all be converted very, very quickly and popped wallet to wallet. And if we're doing it with Dash, no one can tell who did what to what. Now, how are you going to make that illegal? How are you going to crack down on it? When, when a person can walk around with a mnemonic device in their head and claim their money in a different country. Now, again, does this mean that everybody out there listening to me should go start investing in alt currencies? No. It does mean you, you owe it to yourself to look at it and see it as, basically, I see it as a risk play. Something could happen to it. So I'm not going to put the kid's college money. The kid's college money's gone now. He's done gone on his own, taking it with him. But you understand what I'm saying. I wouldn't put the kid's college money in it. I wouldn't take a whole big portion of the money we have put away for retirement and dump it in. But I'll buy some here and there, especially when I see a reason to it, when I when I see what a company's doing. When I look at somebody like Swarm City and, and they're trading at you know, a buck to a buck and a half to two bucks and flipping around in there, when all they have to show for what they're doing right now is a wallet, but I evaluate their team, I understand their vision and what they're doing, and I know when they release Boardwalk that day, as long as it works at all, I know that there's going to be more intrinsic value to the SWAT token because now it can actually do something other than just be traded as a token. And that there's a third-level plan. So I'm looking at that company and saying, this is a company that's a major technological disruptor. 
And throwing 550 bucks at it? Are you kidding me? That, 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 that's pocket change in the world of investment. For me. may not be for you. Maybe for you it's 50 bucks. But all I can tell you is this has all been very good to me. And I think it's reached a point of a, of a level of critical mass where we can't put it back in the bottle. This just reminds me of the same shit. I remember when the internet started blowing up back in the 90s. You've got mail, stuff like that. And people started building businesses online. There were, there were naysayers. Yeah, you're wasting your time. It's only going to be for the big companies. They're going to shut it all down. It's the Wild West right now. They're going to regulate you out of existence. And those of us that ignored those people that were clinging to the paradigm built businesses, multiple businesses, and enriched our lives. And eventually the naysayers, well, of course you made money. You got in early. Well, why didn't you? I don't know. So I personally feel in the world of cryptocurrency, we've reached a point where that genie can't go back in the bottle. Major corporations are embracing these technologies. Microsoft is sniffing all around Ethereum wondering how can we build the Microsoft currency on the Ethereum backbone instead of building the Microsoft backbone. Do you know why? Because they have no credibility. The only way they have credibility is if they come into the space. If they try to create their, their own thing without using Ethereum or Bitcoin or something for a backbone, They are the enemy in the minds of the people that are pushing alternative currencies right now. Understand what's really going on. This isn't just a way to make money or to make payments. This is a global trust system that writes out third parties. So the only reason for a third party to be in the equation now is because they bring value, not because they, they implicitly provide trust. So think of it about like this. If I'm a seller on eBay right now, or I'm a seller on Amazon right now, they take a pretty hefty fee to do what they do. Okay? So I, you know, I think eBay is something like 8% or something like that. I don't know what Amazon is because I've never sold on Amazon directly, but they take a piece, and I'm sure they have to to operate. Now, what is the biggest two reasons that somebody's willing to let them take that piece? Well, number one is because it's a huge marketplace where people can find stuff, so you're more likely to be found. But it's actually more important that you're more likely to sell. And why are you more likely to sell on Amazon, specifically? Because on Amazon, you know if I create a product and put it up there and I, and, and I have it fulfilled by Amazon or I directly, any way that it gets sold through Amazon, if that product gets to you and you open it up and go, this is bullshit, this is junk, I'm going to return it, you get your money back. You slap a label on it, you stick it in the mail, and you get your money back. And you know that. So it's trust. What crypto does is create a trust net. And more and more of this is coming where it's a little bit more like eBay, but it's so much more advanced. So why will you buy from a guy on eBay? Do you get that assurance from eBay? No, but eBay runs a review system. So when I look and I see this guy selling some seeds I want to buy, has a thousand five-star reviews, very few negative reviews, and he's been on eBay for years, I have no problem sending them my eight bucks for seeds. So both of those organizations in different ways are creating trust in the buyer, which creates greater conversion for the seller. And, and there's a voluntary component to this from buyer and seller. Buyer and seller both agree the review system on eBay helps them identify trust. 
So then the only way that a Microsoft can come play in the cryptocurrency, they have to enable greater trust or greater market reach for the parties involved. If they can't do that, they don't get to play. Because the whole point is to write out J.P. Morgan Chase, to write out the United States government. That's the whole point. To enable agorism across the planet. That's why this is being done. Like I said yesterday, or this week when I had my interview uh, with Brian Young, the miners are in this to make money, but the developers are in this, in some instances, to make money, but also their primary drive is to change the way the world does business. That's the thing that actually inspires them to work so hard. I want them to make money because that keeps them working hard, okay? But what makes them go down this road in the first place? I mean, think about the people that can do the type of programming to develop a, a, a platform like Ethereum and take it forward or to come in and spin something off the Ethereum backbone and do something like Swarm City and create the boardwalk marketplace on Swarm City. Think about the ability of those programmers. Don't you think they could make really good money just going to work somewhere? And they might, work, they might make a lot of money off of this. They might get incredibly wealthy because they get a, a, a stake in the, in, this, in, this, in the tokens themselves early on. But they could be making so much money doing something else. They're mission-driven. They're mission-driven. And you know what? When a coder goes bad and starts working for the dark side, it gets out in the ecosystem quickly. And they can't find a place to go anymore. Nobody will have them. This is a radical idea changing the world. Creating an environment where trust can be developed by the transactions and the interactions itself. Not even with just, just straight reviews, but actually just the number of transactions where no one got upset, no one filed a grievance. The guy's done business with a thousand people. He has a certain amount of trust. It's radically earth-shifting, and that's why I recommend that you at least learn more and you don't write it off because you don't understand it or because you're afraid. That's just my thoughts on it. Anyway, if, uh, if you like this show and the work that we do and the stuff that we put out on a daily basis throughout the week, one of the ways you can support us is by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. Get on over to tspaz. You can, you can get to Amazon from there, and your shopping on Amazon right there will be beneficial to us. Um, and you can uh, see our, our reviews of the day. Today's item of the day is um, also an encore item. It is called The Herbal Medicine Maker's Handbook by James Green. And what I like to call this book is the, is the best deal you'll ever get on a course in herbalism that will take you halfway to being a freaking master herbalist. So there's a lot of people out there doing courses on herbalism, and they'll sell for 100 to $500 or more. This book's 16 bucks. And if you, if you take this book and you start out with making a simple dandelion tincture, which is what, he, what James does in the first chapter, and you go through the book and every single uh, method and uh, technique that he teaches you, you'll make two or three things in those kind of baskets and learn about the herbs that work best with them. By the time you get to the end of this book, you'll know more about herbal medication than most people on the planet. I really believe that because there's a lot of people that have a lot of book knowledge, I guess is the way to look at it. They have a lot of theoretical knowledge, but the projects in this book, and they're not really projects, but it's like, here's how you make an infusion. Here's how you make a tincture. Here's how you make, you know, what, what have you, um, over and over again. Here's how to do all this stuff. Here's the herbs that it works with. Um, 
then what will happen, here's how you make a hydrosol. By the time you're done doing all of this, you'll have the actual practical knowledge and know how to be safe with it and know what it does. And I think you'll start to really appreciate what I've always tried to teach about herbal medication, that we can't practice what we call, we can, but it's not the most useful thing to do, you know, replacement therapy, where we look at herbal medication the same way we do at conventional medication. We just make substitutions. So if I have a headache, I take an aspirin. But if I have a headache, I might make an herbal uh, that contains white willow bark. Well, that's just replacement. And a headache is not a deficiency in aspirin, and it's not a deficiency in white willow bark. It's not a deficiency in Tylenol. It's not a deficiency in Motrin. There's something at ill ease in the body. And a lot of the herbal stuff is better to be used day to day or certain seasons as more of a tonifying thing, a preventative thing. And I think you can get a lot of that from this book. So check it out again. It's called The Herbal Medicine Maker's Handbook, a home manual by James Green, herbalist. Um, I think this guy's fantastic. He does have some woo-woo stuff in there. He does. I'll warn you right now. You can read my review for an understanding of that. Um, but the way I've described this book is if you said, Jack, you have to give up every book you have on herbalism and you can only keep one, what book would it be? It would be this book. So check it out, and remember always when you're going to do some online shopping, consider going to tspaz.com first, and you can help us out by doing that. Uh, next up, let's talk about the song of the day. This is an interesting one. It'll be the first rap song I've ever played on the Survival Podcast, but it's not all rap. Um, the song is called Hands Held High by Linkin Park. And, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read what John Adams says, and I'll give you some thoughts in there. Uh, it says, this album was a huge deal in 2007, topping charts around the world. Jack doesn't like rap, but this song invokes some strong feelings and was made at a time when rap began to emerge into a more mature style. This song was not released as a single, but it's one of the best on the album. The song is written from two perspectives during the Iraq War. The first part is the perspective of the inner-city young American. The second half is from the perspective of a young Iraqi man. Uh, and that's what the song delivers. I'll say this. If, if I'm going to listen to a song that's rap and not want to kill myself, it's going to be this style of rap. Linkin Park was a kind of like rap that I could go, not going to listen to it every day or, or jam out to it for hours at a time. But if it happens to come on, unless I'm in a totally different mood, um, I'm okay with it. And what I mean by that is, okay, Pandora was what I was searching for earlier. I don't know what it is, but sometimes I'll be listening to like, you know, a, a country Pandora station that I've trained that's like old Johnny Cash music and stuff like that, and then all of a sudden, like, some, like, heavy metal or hard rock will come on in the middle of it, and I always thumbs down it, but at that point, even if I like the song, that's not what I'm listening to. So as long as I'm listening to kind of upbeat, kind of, you know, kind of rock-level music or something, this wouldn't bother me. So I just wanted to say that first. But I also wanted to kind of talk about the, the concept here of anti-war and what my biggest problem with the anti-war left is. And it's not that they're anti-war. No, my problem with the anti-war left and what buys them zero credibility with me is they're so selectively anti-war. Um, this is the year 2007. And in 2008, the anti-war movement will die right around, oh, I don't know, November. Because what happens? Well, Barack Obama becomes president, and the left has its 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 you know progressive hero elected, and the left and their 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 willingness to protest these wars dries up into oblivion by you know early 2009. 
Um, Cindy Sheehan disappears. All of the things that were going on. I remember the very you know heavy anti-war sentiment, and I hadn't fully come around on this stuff yet. And I thought all these people were loons, and they act like loons. And 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 then you understand why they act like loons because it's not about being anti-war; it's about being anti-Republican. And that's why right now you're seeing kind of a a rebirth of the anti-war left. They're kind of showing up again because Trump's president. But where were they for eight years? Where were they? They're under rocks somewhere, I guess. But what I, what I do like about this song is thinking about what it must be like to be a child in one of these war zones. That's in here. And I think that we have to be willing to look at that square in the face. And I'm not saying all wars are wrong and we should never use force. I, you know how I feel. We should only use force when we have to to defend ourselves. But even if you don't agree with that, even if you believe in preemptive strikes and things like that, then this is what I'm saying to you. If you're not willing to have some little kid running around the street watching his dad get his head blown off for the cause, don't go. But do we ever actually look at it that way? We look at it from, can we win? Can we do it with high-tech weaponry, whatever? Minimize civilian casualties. You know what minimize civilian, ca civilian casualties means? You can have lots of civilian casualties, just less than you would normally have. Are we willing to destroy somebody's life for what we say we need to do? Either we are or we, we are not. But if you notice that we never have that debate at a time that we're leading up to a war, it's always whether or not we should do it, how many lives will it cost us, Not how many lives will we take? What will that taking of life look like? Is this really necessary? See, we'll be better off. Or they're doing this and they shouldn't be. Do we ask the question, as, not as a government, as a people, is this really necessary to preserve the life that I want to live here in my country? Do these people present a clear and present danger to me? They'll superficially kind of convince you that it does, but do you ever really analyze it? I think if you start analyzing it, you'll start feeling a lot more like this song. Again, I just wonder where all these people went by 2009. And maybe they'll start showing up again. I don't know. Wouldn't it be great if we could just start all analyzing things with logic and reason and asking the question, do we really need to do this? Not just with war but in all things. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Step it aside when we come in Feel it in your chest, the syllables get pumping People on the street can panic and start running Words on loose leaf sheet, complete coming I jump on my mind, I summon the rhyme, I'm dumping Healing the blind, I promise to let the sun in Sick of the dark ways, we march to the drumming Jump when they tell us that they want to see jumping Fuck that, I want to see some fist pumping Risk something, take back what's yours Say something that you know they might attack you for Cause I'm sick of being treated like I had before Like a stupid standing for what I'm standing for Like this war's really just a different brand of war Like it doesn't cater to rich and a fan and poor Like they understand you in the back of the jet When you can't 
put gas in your tank These fuckers are laughing away to the bank and cashing a check Asking you to have compassion and have some respect For a leader so nervous in an obvious way Stuttering and mumbling for nightly news to replay And the rest of the world watching at the end of the day In the living room laughing like, what did he say? Something to see another kid my age drug under a jeep Taking a bound and found later under a tree I wonder if he thought the next one could be me Do you see the soldiers that are out today To brush the dust with bulletproof vests away It's ironic, at times like this you pray But a bomb blew the mosque up yesterday There's bombs on the buses, bikes, roads Inside your market, your shops, your clothes My dad, he's got a lot of fear I know But enough pride inside, nothing let that show My brother had a book he would hold with pride A little red cover with a broken spine on the back He hand wrote a quote inside When the rich wage war it's the poor who die Meanwhile the leader just talks away Stuttering and mumbling for nightly news to play The rest of the world watching at the end of the day Both scared and angry like what did he say?